Chapter 2. The Problem and the Rightful Remedy. In modern America, the Constitution has become the great unmentionable. Where the federal government derives constitutional authorization for its various activities is hardly ever considered or discussed. The maverick journalist who does pose the forbidden question is laughed at or ignored. On the rare occasion in which a federal official deigns to answer, the response is nearly always an awkward and inane reference to one of three constitutional clauses we shall examine in the first part of this chapter, none of which grants the power whose exercise the official is trying to defend. When the Constitution was ratified, the people were assured that it established a government of limited powers, primarily related to foreign policy and the regulation of interstate commerce, that the states retained all powers not delegated to the new government, and that the federal government could exercise no additional powers without their consent, given in the form of constitutional amendments. This is not a peculiarly conservative or libertarian reading of the historical record. This is the historical record. The three constitutional clauses that have most frequently been exploited on behalf of expansions of federal government power are the General Welfare Clause, the Commerce Clause, and the Necessary and Proper Clause. Generations of hapless American high school students have been taught fantasy versions of these clauses, such that they graduate with the conviction that the federal government is duly authorized to do pretty much whatever it wants to do. Let's consider the General Welfare Clause first. We read in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, that Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Does this mean the federal government has the power to implement any measure it thinks will redound to the general welfare? When anti-federalist opponents of the Constitution pointed to this clause with alarm, warning that the new government could thereby exercise whatever power it wanted on the grounds that it somehow promoted the general welfare, the Constitution's supporters assured them that such fears were unfounded. The federal government, they said, had only those powers expressly delegated to it. James Madison was particularly adamant. The very structure of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, he said, ruled out such an interpretation. If the General Welfare Clause granted the federal government a general power to do anything that might advance the general welfare, why did this section of the Constitution then bother to list specific powers the government could exercise? Wouldn't these specifics have been superfluous and absurd on the heels of a general grant of power that obviously included the powers that followed and made their enumeration unnecessary? There is no point, in other words, in specifically declaring, for example, that the federal government shall have the power to erect needful buildings immediately after saying it may do anything at all it thinks will advance the general welfare. Thus Madison wrote in Federalist No. 41, 
For what purpose could the enumeration of particulars be inserted? if these and all others were meant to be included in the preceding general power. In 1792, he said, If Congress can employ money indefinitely to the general welfare, and are the sole and supreme judges of the general welfare, they may take the care of religion into their own hands. They may appoint teachers in every state, county, and parish, and pay them out of the public treasury. They may take into their own hands the education of children, establishing in like manner schools throughout the Union. They may assume the provision for the poor. They may undertake the regulation of all roads other than post roads. In short, everything from the highest object of state legislation down to the most minute object of police would be thrown under the power of Congress. In other words, Activities of the federal government that we have been taught to consider perfectly unobjectionable were to Madison clear and obvious violations of the Constitution that derived from a dishonest reading of the General Welfare Clause. This remained Madison's view throughout his life. In its fair and consistent meaning, he wrote in 1800, it, the General Welfare Clause, cannot enlarge the enumerated powers vested in Congress. Madison was saying the same thing in the 1830s, noting that it exceeds the possibility of belief that supporters of limited government should have silently permitted the introduction of words or phrases in a sense rendering fruitless the restrictions and definitions elaborated by them. Madison also noted that of all the amendments the states proposed to limit the power of the new government shortly after they ratified the Constitution, not one sought to circumscribe the power of Congress under the General Welfare Clause, even though, if the expansive reading of the clause were correct, it was evidently more alarming in its range than all the powers objected to put together. Had the General Welfare Clause been understood to grant an unspecified reservoir of powers to the federal government, in other words, early Americans suspicious of government power would obviously have objected to it. People understood that the General Welfare Clause, which had also appeared in the Articles of Confederation, did no such thing. It was taken for granted, said Madison, that the terms were harmless because explained and limited, as in the Articles of Confederation, by the enumerated powers which followed them. This was Jefferson's view as well. To interpret the words general welfare as granting the federal government a distinct and independent power to do any act they please, which might be for the good of the Union, would render all the preceding and subsequent enumerations of power completely useless. Such a reading, furthermore, would reduce the whole instrument to a single phrase, that of instituting a Congress with power to do whatever would be for the good of the United States. And, as they would be the sole judges of the good or evil, it would be also a power to do whatever evil they please. Every tyrant claims to be advancing the general welfare. Having just fought against a government that claimed an undefined reservoir of powers, 
Americans would not have granted such a reservoir to their own government. If anything, the General Welfare Clause was a restriction on the power of the federal government. It had to exercise the powers delegated to it with an eye to the welfare of the country as a whole, not to the particular advantage of one state or section. It might be objected that Alexander Hamilton, the country's first Secretary of the Treasury, took a different, more expansive view of the clause. Of that there is no doubt. But we may question how much weight Hamilton's position should carry. For one thing, prior to New York's ratification of the Constitution, Hamilton noted in Federalist No. 17 and No. 34 that the clause did not mean that an area like agriculture would come under the purview of the federal government. But having given the people that assurance, Hamilton then declared, several years after the Constitution was ratified, that the clause did mean agriculture could be directed by the federal government. Which of these opinions is more weighty? The one intended to explain the Constitution's intent to the people as they were deciding whether or not to ratify? Or the opposite opinion, given suddenly and after the people's decision had safely been made? If we wish to cite Hamilton as a source, we might, while we are at it, quote from his speech to the Constitutional Convention to the effect that the United States ought to have a president for life. A Senate whose members appointed by the president would serve for life, and state governors appointed by the president. We might likewise cite his view that the British government, which he hoped his own might come to resemble, was the best in the world. Finally, we could cite Hamilton's own admission that he was very much out of step with the rest of the Constitution's drafters. Then we might fully assess the relevance of Hamilton's views of the General Welfare Clause. The Constitution's Commerce Clause declares that Congress will have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. It is the part about regulating commerce among the several states that has caused the mischief. As with the General Welfare Clause, the original understanding of the Commerce Clause, the understanding that informed the decisions of the ratifying conventions, and thus the interpretation to which they believed they were committing the American people, is not so hard to uncover. Commerce meant only trade or exchange, not as its more ambitious interpreters have tried to claim, all gainful activity. No reference to commerce at the Constitutional Convention in the Federalist or at the state ratifying conventions encompasses anything else. Among the several states meant exactly that, commerce between one state and another, not commerce that might happen to have an effect on another state. Regulate, for that matter, in the 18th century meant to make regular, that is, to cause to function in a regular and orderly manner, as opposed to the word's modern meaning that suggests micromanagement and control. This is the sense in which the Second Amendment's well-regulated militia is to be understood, for example. Thus, the purpose of the Commerce Clause was to establish a free trade zone throughout the United States, thereby making commerce regular, 
and prevent states from disrupting the free movement of commerce. That was certainly how James Madison understood and explained it. Among the several states grew out of the abuses of the power by the importing states in taxing the non-importing, and was intended as a negative and preventive provision against injustice among the states themselves, rather than as a power to be used for the positive purposes of the general government. By the 19th century, the Supreme Court was already pretending the Commerce Clause extended federal authority over commerce that merely affected other states. It thereby opened up a potentially limitless field of power to the federal government, since practically anything can be said to affect anything else in some way. By the 20th century, this had become a substantial effects rule, but in practice it allowed the federal government to control whatever it wanted. Thus, the federal government claimed the power to regulate the wages of a janitor in a building whose occupants happened to be engaged in interstate commerce. In Wickard v. Filburn, 1942, the court ruled that the federal government could regulate the amount of wheat grown on an individual's farm, even though the wheat never left the state and the farmer and his livestock consumed it themselves. Had they not grown and consumed that wheat, the argument went, they might have purchased it from another state, and hence their abstention from this purchase indirectly affected interstate commerce. Following the upheavals of the New Deal Court in the late 1930s, the Supreme Court did not challenge the federal government's Commerce Clause claims by declaring even a single federal law unconstitutional on those grounds until the anomalous 1995 case of U.S. v. Lopez. That case involved the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990, which made it a federal crime to carry a firearm into a school zone. Some 40 states already had similar legislation restricting guns in school zones on the books at the time this federal law was passed. Alfonso Lopez, Jr., who was convicted of violating the act, objected that the federal government had had no constitutional authority to enact the law in the first place. The federal government argued that the potential presence of guns in schools would make students nervous, that nervous students would learn less and thus acquire an inferior education, that people with inferior educations would contribute less to the U.S. economy, that contributing less to the U.S. economy would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and that therefore the question of guns in schools could be regulated by the U.S. government. This line of reasoning, although not significantly more absurd than the federal government's Commerce Clause justifications for many other laws, was too much even for the normally indulgent Supreme Court. But even here, with the exception of Justice Clarence Thomas, no one on the court challenged the substantial effects rule itself. The justices merely claimed that the federal government had not shown substantial effects on interstate commerce in this particular case. And although supporters of centralized government feared, and opponents hoped, that Lopez would serve as a precedent for the future, pushing the federal government back toward an honest interpretation of the Commerce Clause no such thing occurred. 
Meanwhile, the federal government has been extending its authority over countless areas of American life, on the grounds, when indeed it bothers justifying itself at all, of flimsy to non-existent connections to interstate commerce. Finally, we come to the Necessary and Proper Clause, which social studies teachers around the country cite to this day as an elastic clause that permits the federal government to exercise a broad array of powers not mentioned in the Constitution. The clause declares that Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Given the framers' assurances about the limited nature of the government they were creating and their repeatedly expressed fears of unlimited government, we must look with skepticism at the claim that this or any constitutional clause was designed to be an elastic clause. Such a thing would have defeated the purpose the framers had in mind in drafting a written constitution. A review of the statements of the framers and ratifiers regarding this clause confirms our initial skepticism. Of course it was not designed as an elastic clause, an invitation to tyranny that would have horrified just about everyone. It was intended as a note of clarification only. It meant not that the federal government was thereby granted an array of unspecified powers, but that the government could perform simple tasks that were clearly incidental to carrying out its enumerated powers. Thus, the power to erect needful buildings would, by direct rather than fanciful implication, involve a power to purchase lumber for this purpose. It is not difficult to uncover evidence of this broad consensus. The state ratifying conventions are full of assurances about the innocuous nature of the clause. Thus, in Virginia, George Nicholas said, It was no augmentation of power, and Madison said the clause gives no supplementary powers. Archibald McLean said in North Carolina that the clause gives no new power. In Pennsylvania, Chief Justice Thomas McKean explained that it gives to Congress no further powers than those enumerated. James Iredell said the same thing in North Carolina. This is the clause that our textbooks expect to carry the burden of explaining how our government could have grown to such proportions without violating the Constitution. What history shows, on the contrary, is that eminent Americans, even those who favored a powerful central government, agreed that the Constitution would have been exactly the same had this alleged elastic clause never been written. Even Alexander Hamilton noted that the Constitution would have been in no way different had this clause not been included at all. It may be affirmed with perfect confidence, wrote Hamilton in Federalist No. 33, that the constitutional operation of the intended government would be precisely the same if the necessary and proper clause were entirely obliterated. In sum, writes Harvard's Raoul Berger, 
The records make plain that the Necessary and Proper Clause was merely designed to specifically authorize the employment of means to effectuate, to carry into execution, granted powers, not to augment them, and they strongly read against the doctrine of implied powers. This interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause continued to be insisted upon in the years following ratification of the Constitution. Jefferson defended this view in 1791, pointing out that necessary meant necessary, not merely convenient. Governments will always find their oppressions convenient. St. George Tucker, the great judge and law professor who wrote the highly regarded view of the Constitution of the United States, 1803, echoed these sentiments. So did Judge Spencer Roan, political thinker and U.S. Senator John Taylor, and a great many others. James Madison wrote in 1800 that this interpretation of the clause is precisely the construction which prevailed during the discussions and ratifications of the Constitution. It cannot too often be repeated, he continued, that this limited interpretation is absolutely necessary in order for the clause to be compatible with the character of the federal government, which is possessed of particular and defined powers only, rather than general and indefinite powers. Thus, the three clauses most frequently abused on behalf of a central government of unlimited powers not only fail to support any such thing, but mean pretty much the opposite of what politicians and judges have tried to tell us they mean. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people in turn makes clear that broad constructions of these phrases, by which the federal government arrogates to itself an array of additional unspecified powers, are inadmissible. Here, in this crucial amendment, was explicit recognition of what the Federalists themselves had insisted was already implicit in the Constitution as drafted. The Tenth Amendment was the written guarantee of the central principle that state ratifying conventions had been assured of as they were being urged to approve the Constitution. The proposed federal government will have only those powers granted to it and no others. The various attempts to evade the Tenth Amendment's clear meaning over the years, and particularly since the 1940s, must be counted to the great intellectual discredit of those advancing them. In U.S. v. Darby, 1942, the Supreme Court tried to describe the amendment as a mere truism, no more interesting than the tautological statement that all bachelors are unmarried. Left unexplained was why so many of the original states would have vigorously demanded the inclusion of a mere tautology where the country's legal history would be replete with references to a tautology, or why Jefferson would have described a tautology as the cornerstone of the Constitution. Another claim is that the Tenth Amendment was in fact meant to allow the federal government greater flexibility than so-called strict constructionists of the Constitution will admit. 
After all, the argument goes, while the amendment says the federal government will have those powers delegated to it, it does not say expressly delegated. This failure to include the word expressly has been cited as evidence that Congress was intended to possess a broad array of additional powers beyond just the ones specifically enumerated in Article 1, Section 8. After all, the Articles of Confederation had used the word expressly, so its absence in the Tenth Amendment had to be a deliberate omission. This argument is exploded at once when we examine the state ratifying conventions, which each state held individually and to which it elected delegates who were given the task of deciding whether to adopt the Constitution. Time and again, the Constitution was portrayed by its supporters as granting only those powers that the states expressly delegated to it. That means the states themselves entered the Union with the express assurance that this was how the Constitution would be understood. It is this that matters to constitutional interpretation. What were the people themselves told about the document they were to ratify? At the New York Convention, even Alexander Hamilton, as we have seen, one of the strongest advocates of a powerful central government, and among the least committed to the cause of states' rights, declared that in all federations, the proposed American one not accepted, whatever is not expressly given to the federal head is reserved to the members. The people, moreover, had already delegated their sovereignty and their powers to their several state governments. And these cannot be recalled and given to another without an express act. When New York ratified the Constitution, it accompanied its ratification with a brief rendition of the nature of the Union it understood itself to be joining. Every power, jurisdiction, and right, which is not by the said Constitution clearly delegated to the United States of America or the departments of the government thereof, remains to the people of the several states or to their respective state governments. The people of half a dozen states were specifically assured that the proposed federal government would indeed possess only those powers expressly delegated to it. We may cite a few more of them here. Thus, at the Pennsylvania Convention, James Wilson said that everything not expressly mentioned will be presumed to be purposely omitted. At the North Carolina Convention, Governor Samuel Johnson explained that Congress cannot assume any other powers than those expressly given them without a palpable violation of the Constitution, adding that the powers of Congress are all circumscribed, defined, and clearly laid down, so far as they may go, but no farther. Charles Pinckney told the Convention in South Carolina, that the federal government could not execute or assume any powers except those that were expressly delegated. James Madison emphasized the same point repeatedly both in the Federalist and at his state's ratifying convention. In Federalist number 40, he noted that the general powers are limited and that the states in all unenumerated cases are left in enjoyment of their sovereign and independent jurisdiction. In number 45, he observed, 
The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. At the Virginia Convention, he noted that the federal government would have defined and limited objects beyond which it cannot extend its jurisdiction. In 1789, the Salem Mercury of Massachusetts published Roger Sherman's Observations on the New Federal Constitution and the Alterations that Have Been Proposed as Amendments. Sherman was a Connecticut lawyer who signed the Constitution and a future U.S. representative and senator. Sherman concurred with the above. The powers vested in the federal government are particularly defined so that each state still retains its sovereignty in what concerns its own internal government and a right to exercise every power of a sovereign state not expressly delegated to the government of the United States. Well into the early republic, the same assurances were regularly repeated, sometimes by the Federalists themselves. That is, the party in the early republic known for its support for a strong central government. Thus, Samuel Chase, as partisan a Federalist as ever lived, declared in Calder v. Bull, 1798, that the several state legislatures retain all powers of legislation delegated to them by the state constitutions, which are not expressly taken away by the Constitution of the United States. When we survey the state's demands for constitutional amendments at the time of ratification, we consistently find reference to the expressly delegated principle. In Massachusetts, John Hancock proposed that the Constitution be amended so that it be explicitly declared that all powers not expressly delegated by the aforesaid Constitution are reserved to the several states to be by them exercised. John Adams, in turn, believed such an amendment would serve to diminish or remove people's apprehensions about the Constitution. The matter was then referred to a committee, whose subsequent report read, in part, And it is the opinion of this convention that since certain amendments and alterations in the said Constitution would remove the fears and quiet the apprehensions of many of the good people of this commonwealth, and more effectually guard against an undue administration of the federal government, the Convention do therefore recommend that the following alterations and provisions be introduced into the said Constitution. First, that it be explicitly declared that all powers not expressly delegated by the aforesaid Constitution are reserved to the several states, to be by them exercised. Seven other proposed amendments followed. New Hampshire proposed the same thing. So did Maryland and Pennsylvania. By means of such an amendment, these states sought explicit recognition of the principle that the Federalists themselves assured them was already there, that the federal government possessed only those powers expressly delegated to it. The absence of the word expressly in the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution was not a subterfuge by means of which the federal government could someday exercise a wide array of additional powers. In fact, the addition of the words, or to the people, as in 
All powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people from whom they originated. In tandem with the Ninth Amendment, had essentially the same effect as the words expressly delegated. Emmerich de Vattel, one of the great international lawyers of the 18th century, taught in his 1758 work, The Law of Nations, that sovereigns possess all power they have not expressly delegated, and therefore that any delegation of power by a sovereign must be construed strictly. In the American system, the sovereigns are the peoples of the various states. Therefore, their delegations of power to the federal government, according to accepted norms of international law, are to be construed strictly, and their agent is to hold only those powers expressly delegated to it. Congressman John Page, who served in the Congress that drafted the Bill of Rights, agreed that the combination of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments had the effect of restoring the word expressly. That was also the view of James Madison. Madison publicly noted, shortly after the ratification of the Constitution, that the state conventions had ratified on the understanding that the federal government would possess only expressly delegated power. And indeed, Madison believed the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, taken together, had accomplished exactly that. In fact, Thomas Tucker, the congressman who sought without success to add the word expressly to the amendment, was also the one who added, or to the people, a phrase he considered more important even than expressly. He envisioned both of these additions as accomplishing the same end. Explicit reference to the principle of popular sovereignty in the Constitution would, by the American understanding of the existing law of nations, as international law was then known, confine the federal government to only those powers expressly delegated by the peoples of the states. The omission of expressly had a far less ambitious aim than is popularly understood today. It was intended to leave room for the federal government to exercise clearly incidental means to the attainment of the ends assigned to it. In the Virginia Ratifying Convention, for instance, Edmund Randolph noted the inability of the Articles of Confederation government to issue passports, even though such a power, while not expressly delegated to the Congress, were surely incidental to the diplomatic tasks entrusted to it. By omitting this specific word expressly, which had yielded inconveniences in the past, the framers of the amendment addressed this earlier difficulty. But by inserting the idea of popular sovereignty, they restored the principle that the federal government possessed only expressly delegated powers, and that any powers it might further exercise would have to be clearly incidental to the exercise of the delegated powers. Thus, whatever we may think of the decision to omit the word expressly, the omission in no way justifies the view that the federal government possesses an endless source of additional unspecified powers. The historical record is much too clear and consistent for any other interpretation of the issues we have discussed in this chapter to have much chance of success. That is why critics typically give up trying to argue the matter.
They changed the subject, proposing instead that none of this matters anyway, since what the framers may have written over 200 years ago is of no import to modern-day Americans. Even if this argument were true, it is silent on the question that really matters. How exactly are we to know what the original Constitution should be replaced with, in accordance with people's supposedly different outlook today? Who decides? The implicit answer is that we let federal judges decide on the evolving meaning of the Constitution. But this would merely give a small group of politically well-connected lawyers a monopoly on determining how Americans will be governed. Such an arrangement sounds much less desirable when stated that way, which is why it never is stated that way. Furthermore, since the framers of the Constitution made clear that the clauses we examined above, general welfare, commerce, and necessary and proper, were very far from open-ended grants of power to the federal government, how can the mere passage of time transform these clauses into the broad grants of power that our critics want them to be? Even Alexander Hamilton insisted in Federalist No. 78 that unless the people had solemnly and formally ratified a change in the meaning of the Constitution, the courts could not proceed on any other basis. Until the people have, by some solemn and authoritative act, annulled or changed the established form, it is binding upon themselves collectively as well as individually. And no presumption or even knowledge of their sentiments can warrant their representatives in a departure from it prior to such an act. Likewise, James Iredell, a leading North Carolina Federalist and the youngest of the original Supreme Court appointees, explained that the people had chosen to be governed under such and such principles. They have not chosen to be governed or promised to submit upon any other. Thomas Cooley, the distinguished Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, declared in 1868 that a court which would allow a change in public sentiment to influence it in giving construction to a written constitution not warranted by the intention of its founders would be justly charged with reckless disregard of official oath and public duty. A constitution is not to be made to mean one thing at one time and another at some subsequent time when the circumstances may have changed as perhaps to make a different rule in the case seem desirable. We're sometimes told that ours is a living constitution that changes with the times. Again, this merely begs the question, who decides what these changes should be? Judges? The Constitution does allow for amendment, which would secure the people's consent to any major changes. But this is not what advocates of the living Constitution have in mind. They mean the federal government will have a monopoly on deciding how the Constitution should be interpreted today and how tomorrow. Should we suspect that it might abuse this power? That it might suddenly discover a whole host of new powers for itself as it re-examines day by day what the Constitution really ought to mean is a sign that we are being paranoid and unreasonable? We should instead 
adopt the tranquil outlook of Brittany Spears, who told us, I think we should just trust our president in every decision he makes, and should just support that, you know, and be faithful in what happens. Thomas Jefferson had the opposite view. Should there be a desire to grant the federal government additional powers, it is better to do so the right way, with popular consent through the amendment process, than for the government itself simply to go ahead and exercise the powers, stretching the meaning of the Constitution to do so. When an instrument admits two constructions, interpretations, the one safe, the other dangerous, the one precise, the other indefinite, I prefer that which is safe and precise. I had rather ask an enlargement of power from the nation, where it is found necessary, than to assume it by a construction which would make our powers boundless. A living constitution is precisely what the American colonists fought against in the American Revolution. The unwritten, living British constitution they found provided scant protection of their liberties. The colonists held fast to an older view of British constitutionalism, according to which a proposed measure was constitutional only if it conformed to a customary practice. This approach had given way to the principle that the criterion of constitutionality was not custom and tradition, but simply the will of Parliament. This is why Americans insisted on a written constitution for their new country. They knew all too well what it was like to live under a living constitution whose meaning could not be definitively pinned down. If we'd like to spit in the faces of our ancestors who fought for American independence from the British, we should by all means advocate a living constitution. In short, it was with good reason that Jefferson wrote, In questions of power, then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. That Constitution had to be construed strictly if it were not to defeat the purpose of its drafting. Our peculiar security is in possession of a written Constitution, Jefferson wrote. Let us not make it a blank paper by construction. In other words, let us not interpret the Constitution so liberally that we destroy its deliberately crafted restraints on government power. One can only imagine what he would have thought of the Supreme Court of our day, which in the face of all the evidence set forth above, can declare with a straight face, as it has numerous times, that the power of Congress to authorize expenditure of public monies for public purposes is not limited by the direct grants of legislative power found in the Constitution. Having established the limited nature of the federal government under the Constitution, we now consider the Jeffersonian answer to the urgent question, what is to be done if that government violates the Constitution? What options are available to the people? To answer that question, we proceed to the presidential term of John Adams, who was elected in 1796. The quasi-war with France was already in progress by the time Adams took office. Diplomatic relations between the United States and France had been cool for years by then. Alienated by, among other things, 
the American government's increasingly warm relations with Britain, as well as its refusal to repay its Revolutionary War debt to France, on the grounds that the debt had been contracted with the previous French regime rather than the revolutionary one, the French government, at war with the British, instituted a policy of seizing American ships trading with the British. The resulting quasi-war amounted to a series of relatively minor naval clashes between the two countries. A war hysteria subsequently broke out, far out of proportion to the danger the country faced, which Adams himself privately acknowledged was minimal to non-existent. Noah Webster's newspaper warned that in the event of a French invasion, an American executive directory, headed by Jefferson, Madison, James Monroe, and Aaron Burr, would take control of the country. Porcupine's Gazette condemned Jefferson as the head of the democratic, Frenchified faction in this country. Jefferson had favored the French Revolution, it is true. His enthusiasm had even bordered on the grotesque at a time when France was convulsed by the reign of terror. But he was obviously not aiding the French or planning a Jacobin-style revolution. And in fact, he later spoke of the horrors of the French Revolution and the murderous Jacobins of France. Not surprisingly, correspondence between Jefferson and Madison during this period reflects their growing alarm at the fanaticism they saw enveloping their country. Perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger real or pretended from abroad wrote Madison. During the Quasi-War, the federal government enacted four pieces of legislation that became known as the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. The Naturalization Act, the least controversial among them, extended the period required for foreigners to become American citizens and was repealed four years later. The Alien Friends Act authorized the president to deport resident aliens considered dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States and expired in two years. The Alien Enemies Act, still on the books today, authorized the President to deport aliens whose home countries were at war with the United States. Although Republicans objected to the Alien Acts on a variety of constitutional grounds, they were essentially not enforced. So we turn our attention to the Sedition Act, by far the Republicans' greatest source of concern. That act established fines and jail time, if any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, or shall cause or procure to be written, printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States, or either House of the Congress of the United States, or the President of the United States, with intent to defame the said government, or either House of the said Congress, or the said President, or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute, or to excite against them or either or any of them the hatred of the good people of the United States, or to stir up sedition within the United States. 
Congressional supporters of the Sedition Act defended the legislation by citing the general welfare and necessary and proper clauses of the Constitution. In addition to the constitutional problems with the Sedition Act, its partisan nature seemed obvious. The President was a Federalist, and the Congress was dominated by Federalists. Under the Sedition Act, they could not be criticized. The Vice President was the Republican Thomas Jefferson. The Sedition Act imposed no penalties for criticizing him. That was fine by Jefferson who believed calumny went with the territory when one entered politics. For it is an injury to which duty requires everyone to submit, whom the public think proper to call to its counsels. He would not suffer calumny to disturb my tranquility. The convictions began quickly enough. Although Matthew Lyon, a U.S. congressman from Vermont, had fought in the American Revolution, that wasn't enough to save him from sedition charges for the crime of writing one letter and publishing another. The letter he wrote spoke of President Adams's continual grasp for power and his thirst for a ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and selfish avarice. The letter he published was from an American in France who wondered why Adams had not been committed to a madhouse. Lyon was sentenced to four months in prison and a fine of $1,000. Stevens T. Mason, a U.S. Senator from Virginia, joined by ordinary citizens from Vermont, collected the money to pay Lyons's fine. Popular opinion was very much in sympathy with Lyon following his arrest, so much so that he won re-election to the House while still incarcerated. Other convictions were equally egregious. Political writer James Callender was given a biased kangaroo proceeding by Justice Samuel Chase, whose later impeachment by the House was motivated in part by outrage at his conduct in this case. Writer and lawyer Thomas Cooper, reflecting on his own trial, cautioned that Americans may learn some useful lessons from this trial and principally that if they mean to consult their own peace and quiet, they will hold their tongues and restrain their pens on the subject of politics. What was to be done? Jefferson saw that some form of resistance was surely necessary, but what form should it take? In the face of unconstitutional federal laws, Jefferson, Virginian and constitutionalist first, Vice President Second, believed a stronger response than mere petitions and protests was called for, but he also wanted to avoid the other extreme of secession. Although he believed in a state's right to withdraw from the Union, this being merely a logical extension of the principle of self-government, which was central to Jefferson's political philosophy, he thought that right should be exercised only as a last resort. What he sought was a mode of resistance that would allow a state to remain in the Union, but at the same time recognize its right to defend itself against federal usurpation. Nullification, in this view, was not an extreme remedy at all. It was the moderate middle ground. It was a central feature of Jeffersonian thought that the true barriers of our liberty are our state governments, 
and it was via nullification that Jefferson suggested those barriers be employed. The judiciary was for Jefferson certainly not the answer to such problems. For one thing, the Supreme Court in his day was packed with Federalists, who would surely have upheld the constitutionality of the Alien and Sedition Acts. For another, the Supreme Court was itself a branch of the federal government, and thus not an impartial arbiter. And finally, the judiciary was composed of human beings, no different from the rest of mankind. To consider the judges of the superior court as the ultimate arbiters of constitutional questions, he argued, would be a dangerous doctrine which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. They have with others the same passion for party, for power, and for the privileges of their core, and their power is the more dangerous as they are in office for life and not responsible, as the other functionaries are, to the elective control. The Constitution has elected no single tribunal. I know no safe depository of the ultimate powers of society, but the people themselves. It makes instructive reading to examine the correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and James Madison during 1798 and 1799 and observe their heightened concern for the future of constitutional government in light of the misplaced war fever and especially the Alien and Sedition Acts. Unfortunately, the letters they might have written to each other regarding the details of what became the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, in particular, do not exist. Jefferson feared that Federalist postmasters were opening and reading their mail. He was ashamed that he could not speak his mind in his own country. I know not which mortifies me most, that I should fear to write what I think, or that my country bear such a state of things. Jefferson later called the Sedition Act a nullity, as absolute and as palpable as if Congress had ordered us to fall down and worship a golden image. Jefferson drafted a series of resolutions that, one, described the nature of the Federal Union, two, condemned the Alien and Sedition Acts as gross violations of the Constitution, and three, considered the proper response by the states. He gave them to Wilson Carey Nicholas, his neighbor and a member of the Virginia Senate. When Nicholas gave them to John Breckinridge, a member of the Kentucky legislature who had also been Jefferson's neighbor at one time, who happened to be passing through Virginia, both Jefferson and Nicholas trusted his assurances that the Kentucky legislature would pass them. According to Professor Marco Bassani, author of a recent study of Jefferson's political thought, these resolutions, which in modified form became the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, contain the whole of his theory of the Federal Union. They begin with this pithy defense of the Jeffersonian view of the nature of the United States. 1. Resolved that the several states composing the United States of America are not united on the principle of unlimited submission to their general federal government, but that by a compact under the style and title of a Constitution for the United States and of amendments thereto, they constituted a general government for special purposes, 
delegated to that government certain definite powers, reserving each state to itself the residuary mass of right to their own self-government. And that whensoever the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. That to this compact each state acceded as a state, and is an integral part, its co-states forming as to itself the other party. That the government created by this compact was not made the exclusive or final judge of the extent of the powers delegated to itself since that would have made its discretion and not the Constitution the measure of its powers. But that, as in all other cases of compact among powers having no common judge, each party has an equal right to judge for itself, as well as of infractions as of the mode and measure of redress. Here, in brief, is the essential statement of the principles behind nullification. The states had not agreed to a system in which they would submit without protest to whatever the federal government should do. To the contrary, the states established a federal government with limited powers and reserved for themselves all powers they did not delegate to that government. Any measures the federal government should take beyond the powers delegated to it are absolutely void. The federal government, which the states themselves created, cannot hold a monopoly on constitutional interpretation and cannot decide for itself what the extent of its own powers are. That would mean the people were governed by the mere discretion of their rulers rather than by the Constitution. Since the federal government, either as a whole or in its branches, is not and cannot be an impartial arbiter of disputes between itself and the states of which it is composed, it is up to each state's own judgment to decide when the Constitution has been violated and how that violation is to be addressed. As we shall see in Chapter 4, although Jefferson deserves much credit for his exposition of these ideas, they, in fact, long preceded his Kentucky Resolutions. Much of the remainder of the Kentucky Resolutions involved an attack on the constitutionality of the Alien and Sedition Acts. The argument in brief was twofold. One, restrictions on political speech violated the First Amendment. And two, the states never delegated to the federal government the powers to be exercised under the Acts, and thus they violated the Tenth Amendment. The federal government's appeal to the general welfare and necessary and proper clauses in defense of the legislation was, according to the resolutions, an absurd violation of the original understanding of those phrases and tended toward the destruction of all the limits prescribed to the federal government's power by the Constitution. That words meant by that instrument to be subsidiary only to the execution of the limited powers ought not to be so construed as themselves to give unlimited powers, nor a part so to be taken as to destroy the whole residue of the instrument. The conclusion then returned to general principles. This commonwealth, read the text, is determined, as it doubts not its co-states are, tamely to submit to undelegated and consequently unlimited powers in no man or body of men on earth. 
it expressed confidence that the other states would see things the same way, namely that the acts in question were clear violations of the Constitution, and indeed altogether void and of no force. John Breckinridge, who sponsored the resolutions in the Kentucky House, argued that when the federal government enacted merely impolitic laws, the people should strive to repeal them. But when the federal government passed laws that extended beyond its constitutional powers, the people at the state level ought to make a legislative declaration that being unconstitutional, they are therefore void and of no effect. With regard to the Alien and Sedition Acts in particular, while Breckinridge hoped Congress might repeal them, or decent judges might refuse to act upon them, he declared that the states could nullify them. I hesitate not to declare it as my opinion, then. It is then the right and duty of the several states to nullify those acts, and to protect their citizens from their operation. And to those who replied that federal judges had found the acts to be constitutionally unobjectionable, and so the matter was closed, Breckinridge replied, Who are the judiciary? Who are they? But a part of the servants of the people created by the federal compact. And if the servants of the people have a right, is it good reasoning to say that the people by whom and for whose benefit both they and the government were created are destitute of that right? In Section 8 of his draft of the Kentucky Resolutions, Jefferson had included the word nullification, but a skittish legislature removed it. The use of that word had to await the Kentucky Resolutions of 1799, which read in relevant part, if those who administer the general government be permitted to transgress the limits fixed by that compact by a total disregard to the special delegations of power therein contained, annihilation of the state governments and the erection upon their ruins of a general consolidated government will be the inevitable consequence. That the principle and construction contended for by sundry of the state legislatures here the reference is to states that had responded unfavorably to the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, that the general government is the exclusive judge of the extent of the powers delegated to it, stop nothing short of despotism. Since the discretion of those who administer the government, and not the Constitution, would be the measure of their powers, that the several states who formed that instrument, being sovereign and independent, have the unquestionable right to judge of its infraction, and that a nullification by those sovereignties of all unauthorized acts done under color of that instrument is the rightful remedy, that this commonwealth does, upon the most deliberate reconsideration, declare that the said alien and sedition laws are, in their opinion, palpable violations of the said Constitution. And however cheerfully it may be disposed to surrender its opinion to a majority of its sister states in matters of ordinary or doubtful policy, yet in momentous regulations like the present, which so vitally wound the best rights of the citizen, it would consider a silent acquiescence as highly criminal. There it is as clear as anyone could ask for.
nullification is the rightful remedy against infractions of the Constitution. The Virginia Resolutions of 1798 likewise protested the Alien and Sedition Acts and urged the states to take action against them. Up until the very recent renewal of interest in these ideas, it was scarcely possible to imagine one of the feckless and docile American states confronting the federal government in such language as Virginia did in 1798. This assembly doth explicitly and peremptorily declare that it views the powers of the federal government as resulting from the compact to which the states are parties as limited by the plain sense and intention of the instrument constituting the compact, as no further valid that they are authorized by the grants enumerated in that compact, and that in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the said compact, the states who are parties thereto have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. In Appendix 1 of this audiobook, Judge Abel P. Upshur considers various means of interposing for arresting the progress of the evil, of usurpation, and concludes that the only avenue of redress by which a state may effectively interpose its authority is indeed nullification. The resolutions continue. The General Assembly doth also express its deep regret that a spirit has in sundry instances been manifested by the federal government to enlarge its powers by forced constructions of the constitutional charter which defines them, and that implications have appeared of a design to expound certain general phrases which having been copied from the very limited grant of power in the former Articles of Confederation were the less liable to be misconstrued, so as to destroy the meaning and effect of the particular enumeration which necessarily explains and limits the general phrases, and so as to consolidate the states by degrees into one sovereignty. This is a formal protest against broad interpretation of the Constitution, whereby the general phrases we examined earlier in this chapter are interpreted so loosely as to pretend the subsequent list of the federal government's powers did not exist. In Madison's famous report of 1800, he confirmed that the General Welfare Clause was what the Virginia legislature had had particularly in mind. The Virginia Resolutions close with an appeal to the other states to join with that state in declaring the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional, and to take such measures as are necessary to protect the rights of the states and the people. The initial draft of the resolutions, as John Taylor introduced them into the Virginia Legislature, referred to the Alien and Sedition Acts as unconstitutional and not law, but utterly null, void, and of no force or effect. The words following unconstitutional were later struck out with Taylor's consent. Taylor considered them superfluous, since it went without saying that an unconstitutional law was not law, but rather void and of no effect. That was a widely held position. 
Congressman James Barber, who later served as Governor of Virginia and U.S. Secretary of War, concurred. If the alien and sedition laws are unconstitutional, they are not law, and of course, of no force. Another Republican agreed that if they were unconstitutional, they of course were null and void. The principles of the Virginia Resolutions, Taylor contended, were essential to the maintenance of a federal republic. Should the states sit idly by as their reserve powers are invaded, vainly waiting years for elections to put things right? then all powers whatsoever would gradually be absorbed by and consolidated in the general government. The states do not hold their constitutional rights by the courtesy of Congress. Congress is the creature of the states and of the people. But neither the states nor the people are the creatures of Congress. It would be evidently absurd that the creature, Congress, should exclusively construe the instrument of its own existence, the Constitution. For his part, Congressman Edward Livingston of New York declared in the U.S. House of Representatives that the states and the people must resist the unconstitutional acts in question. If, regardless of our duty as citizens and our solemn obligations as representatives, regardless of the rights of our constituents, Regardless of every sanction, human and divine, we are ready to violate the Constitution we have sworn to defend. Will the people submit to our unauthorized acts? Will the states sanction our usurped power? Sir, they ought not to submit. They would deserve the chains which these measures are forging for them if they did not resist. The Virginia and Kentucky resolutions were not warmly received by the other states, which either ignored or denounced them. Delaware curtly dismissed the resolutions as a very unjustifiable interference with the general government and constituted authorities of the United States, and of dangerous tendency, and therefore not a fit subject for the further consideration of the General Assembly. Rhode Island declared that in the private opinion of its legislators, the Alien and Sedition Acts were perfectly constitutional, indeed well within the powers delegated to Congress, and promotive of the welfare of the United States. The state legislature cannot contemplate, without extreme concern and regret, the many evil and fatal consequences which may flow from the very unwarrantable resolutions aforesaid of the legislature of Virginia. Thus, the Alien and Sedition Acts themselves were perfectly constitutional, but Virginia's call to resistance was to be deplored. The Massachusetts State Senate explicitly declared that they considered the Acts of Congress, commonly called the Alien and Sedition Acts, not only constitutional, but expedient and necessary. The Sedition Act, it said, was wise and necessary, since an audacious and unprincipled spirit of falsehood and abuse had been too long unremittingly exerted for the purpose of perverting public opinion and threatened to undermine and destroy the whole fabric of the government. Not surprisingly, it denied the power of any of the state governments to decide upon the constitutionality of the acts of the federal government. 
As we can see, much of the reason for these indignant replies was that many of the states issuing them supported the Alien and Sedition Acts, whose constitutionality the resolutions so robustly denied. In fact, as we'll see in Chapter 3, some of the very states that professed to be so appalled at the Principles of 98, as the ideas contained in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions came to be known, themselves made use of them not ten years later. So we may take their shock and horror in 1798 with a grain of salt. Remember, too, that these state legislatures were dominated by Federalists, the party that supported the Alien and Sedition Acts, and in whose interests those laws had been drafted. Also significant is that it was not Jefferson's compact theory of the Union, discussed in greater detail in Chapter 4, to which these states objected. Of the states issuing critical replies to the resolutions, only Vermont actually called into question the idea that the Union had been formed as a compact among sovereign states. Thus, the Jefferson-Madison conception of the Union was not itself a source of particular controversy. In light of the disappointing response by the other states, Virginia decided to draft a special report to be written by James Madison, which would respond to the arguments advanced against the position Virginia had taken and consider whether any retreat from the resolutions of 98 was warranted. The resulting report of 1800 declared that having examined the matter with great care, Virginia saw no reason to withdraw or amend its resolutions. To those states that had pointed to the Supreme Court as the arbiter of disputes over power between the federal government and the states, Madison argued in the report that the judiciary, too, could commit transgressions against the Constitution and likewise had to be guarded against. The resolution supposed that dangerous powers not delegated may not only be usurped and executed by the other departments, but that the judicial department also may exercise or sanction dangerous powers beyond the grant of the Constitution, and consequently that the ultimate right of the parties to the Constitution to judge whether the compact has been dangerously violated must extend to violations by one delegated authority as well as by another, by the judiciary as well as by the executive or the legislature. However true, therefore, it may be that the Judicial Department is, in all questions submitted to it by the forms of the Constitution, to decide in the last resort, this resort must necessarily be deemed the last in relation to the authorities of the other departments of the government, not in relation to the rights of the parties to the Constitutional Compact from which the judicial as well as the other departments hold their delegated trusts. On any other hypothesis, the delegation of judicial power would annul the authority delegating it. And the concurrence of this department with the others in usurped powers might subvert forever and beyond the possible reach of any rightful remedy the very Constitution which all were instituted to preserve. In short, 
the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, along with the follow-up report of 1800 and Kentucky Resolutions of 1799, held that, one, the federal government had been created when sovereign states granted it a few enumerated powers. Two, any powers not so delegated remained reserved to the states or the people, a point expressly stated in the Tenth Amendment. And three, should the federal government exercise a power it had not been delegated, the states ought to interpose, that is, they ought to stand between their own people on the one side and the federal government's unconstitutional law on the other. The principles of 98 are essentially ignored and unknown today. No bicentennial commemoration was held in their honor in 1998. Even professional scholars have chosen, mostly for ideological reasons, according to Professor Bassani, to downplay the Kentucky Resolutions in studies of Jefferson's thought, despite their centrality to his understanding of the Union. Dumas Malone spends six pages on the subject out of six entire volumes on Jefferson. Merrill Peterson's biography of over 1,000 pages covers the resolutions in four or five pages. R.B. Bernstein's study, often referred to as the best short biography of Jefferson, grants them a quarter of a page. Bernard Weisberger's study of the political battles culminating in the election of 1800 covers the Kentucky resolutions in one sentence. This deliberate neglect has resulted in a distorted and biased rendering of American history. With the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions and their doctrines downplayed, and their subsequent history completely ignored, political decentralization and the defense of the powers of the states have come to be viewed as the political goals only of those who wish to preserve slavery and oppression. Much of the rest of this audiobook and much of what we have already said is dedicated to disproving this unsupportable claim. Historian Eugene Genovese made a good start toward this end when he considered the five Virginians who made the greatest intellectual contributions to the strict constructionist states' rights interpretation of the Constitution. George Mason, Thomas Jefferson, John Randolph of Roanoke, St. George Tucker, and John Taylor of Caroline. If strict construction and state rights were merely or essentially a facade for the defense of slavery, he said, we need to account for a disturbing and incontrovertible fact. Of the five, only Taylor was pro-slavery, and even he regarded it as an inherited misfortune to be tolerated rather than celebrated. Mason and Randolph spoke out against slavery. Tucker wrote the first important plan for emancipation to come out of Virginia. And when the legislature ignored it, he appealed to the American people by including it as an appendix to his edition of Blackstone, which was widely read by those who aspired to the bar, and indeed by a great many of those who in the manner of the day aspired to be proper gentlemen. In the minds of these five men, and to a considerable extent in their political practice, strict construction and state rights had little to do with slavery. The principles of 98 had exactly nothing to do with slavery, 
and they did not perish when the 18th century drew to a close. To the contrary, in the years to come, these essential constitutional ideas would become commonplace even in the very states that had once denounced them. This forgotten element in American history, which not one American in 100 can recite today, but which anyone frustrated by the ongoing and evidently unstoppable expansion of government power needs to learn, is the subject of the next chapter.